The Federal Reserve left interest rates unchanged at the end of its two-day policy meeting. So what does that mean for your wallet? I'm Veronica Judo. Let's find out. This is In America Today from the Ticker News Studios in New York City. Hello and welcome. Coming up, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is headed for the Middle East. Plus, the Justice Department wants to block JetBlue's Spirit Airlines deal. But first... The Federal Reserve left its target federal funds rate unchanged for the second consecutive time. Even so, consumers likely will get no relief from current sky-high borrowing costs. Altogether, Fed officials have raised rates 11 times in a year and a half. To discuss this and more, we're joined by Philip Taves, the CEO of Taves Asset Management. Thank you so much for your time today. Great being here. So a lot of data has been released. Earnings have come in strong. What do you make of where things stand right now? Well, so you ask, what does it mean for your money? Because the Fed didn't uh, raise rates again. So if you got frustrated with the stock market and you pulled and put it into CDs, then it means exactly nothing. If you stayed in the stock market the last couple of days, it's meant quite a lot as we've seen the stock market move up depending on where you are, between 2 and 4%. Uh, the news, the slightly less hawkish than expected statement by Powell has driven all, virtually all assets up, including aggregate bonds, high-yield bonds, almost a, across the board in equity. So it's been a very good signal at the moment for risk assets. Is Wall Street pricing in one more rate hike this year? Uh, probably, I think that Wall Street anticipates that we won't see another rate hike this year. And in fact, uh, if you look at the data, it shows that there may be no, at least if you look where the futures are priced, additional increases by the Fed. And so I, I think that's really an important thing when we come into the last two months of this year, because you know rates were moved higher based on Powell's last comment back in July. And I think you look at the way the 10-year increased from around 4.3% to about 5%, that was directly negatively correlated with all risk assets. So now we're seeing just the reverse after the statement on Wednesday, where the statement was slightly more dovish and that's pushed risk assets higher. You know, something that's working in our favor, Veronica, is that we're seeing uh, coming into a favorable seasonality too in November and December, where majority of uh, historically months in November have seen mar markets move higher and it's even better in December. So I think this could uh, be a good sign for stocks and for bonds potentially. So what are some of the economic projections that might help the Fed determine whether to raise rates before the end of the year? You know, we heard you just say you don't anticipate this to happen, but what are they looking at ultimately? Well, so the one thing that could sort of knock us off of our little optimism uh, train here would clearly be unfavorable CPI numbers. Uh, and that would rule everything and, and it would force the Fed to come in and raise rates again. And frankly, if you look at the potential for really the fact that GDP already came in strong, if it can, continues to come in strong in uh, fourth quarter, if this causes labor to tighten based on where we've been over the last couple of months, that could be another factor that could cause the Fed to change 
their view on where rates are going to go. Uh, so those are the two main factors to look at. You know, another thing that's important that's not talked about that much is the fact that right now there's increased attention being paid to how successful the treasury auctions are and how weighted that is to the longer end of the curve. That's new. Typically, there's not really much concern about the ability of the treasury to issue uh, you know, treasuries. And so if that becomes a concern long term, in other words, if investors become concerned about the growing fiscal debt in the U.S., that could cause rates to move up as well. So you know, as we've seen over the last three months, it doesn't mandate that uh, the Fed increase rates to have an effect on rates. It can happen on its own. Rate hikes have taken benchmark borrowing costs to their highest level in more than 22 years. While we're getting a pause this month, there's still a potential for the Fed to decide for another hike before the end of the year. Do you think that could set off any ripple effects across the economy? You know, potentially, but you know, we've, we've been focusing so much on just the next couple of months where we're entering into a favorable seasonality. We may see strong stock market momentum driving things higher. Uh, but the fact that rates are as high as they are ultimately may have a significant impact on the economy. So, you know, the, the most poignant data set that we look at is the last time the Fed raised rates prior to this past 12 months. And that was in 2004 to 2006, where the Fed raised rates by 4%. They had a maximum rate of 5.25%. That obviously sounds pretty familiar. And the last time they raised rates was in June of 2006. It took more than 18 months before the stock market turned over. And ultimately, two years later, we entered into a recession. So, you know, we've got the next couple of months or the next couple of quarters where we may see favorable stock market performance. But zooming out, Ultimately, many people believe that these higher rates are going to have an effect on the economy. And of course, that would ultimately send stocks lower and potentially cause us into a recession. It's not right directly in front of us, but it's something potentially we'll see down the road. Now, some economists have been forecasting a recession since 2022. So far, the U.S. has been keeping a much feared recession at bay. Should we be bracing for a downturn in the economy in 2024? Well, so the way we suggest that investors position portfolios is to uh, uh, you know, uh, embrace optimism and position portfolios so that if things do get better, that you're positioned to take advantage of that, but build in contingencies. So we were just talking about potentially very favorable two months and then potentially unfavorable 12 to 24 months. No one really knows when that's going to happen. If, if you look at the last three years, Veronica, the market moves were almost impossible predict, to predict. And I think they may be going forward. So if you just build a portfolio, and what that means is take part of your stock portfolio and put it into hedged equity funds that can have maybe less down market if they market falls. And for your bond funds, leave conventional bonds at the moment and go to something that can be adaptive, like an unconventional bond fund that can invest in different parts of the market and potentially avoid principal losses if rates do move higher again. And just wrapping up um, briefly, how could you uh, do maybe an overview with how the uh, rate hiking cycle impacts Wall Street? Well, there's probably nothing almost more impactful than rates. And as we were just discussing, it can have a very long lag, uh, but high rates affects everything. It increases mortgage payments. 
it increases the the cost of companies to finance themselves. One of the one of the things uh, examples of how rates haven't affected us yet is that if you look at some of the biggest companies that we have, including S and P five hundred companies, many of those companies have have their funding so far out before they have to roll it that they haven't really felt the effects of increased rates. Uh, however, small cap companies that have to refinance much more quickly are going to see a wall of refinancings. And that means their costs and expenses are going to go up while their revenues may not. So it's, it really impacts the economy generally because everything becomes more expensive to fund and that impacts profits. Philip Taves, thanks so much for the information. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is headed for the Middle East. He says he will discuss concrete steps to minimize harm to civilians in Gaza as the Israel-Hamas war Palestinian medics dug through rubble for signs of life on Tuesday after Israeli forces blew large craters in Gaza's biggest refugee camp, saying the military was targeting a central Hamas stronghold. Local health officials said at least 50 people were killed and 150 others injured in the Jabalia camp. This mother wept and prayed for three of her children killed in the strikes, saying, May God have mercy on them, to God we belong, and to him we will return. The Israel Defense Forces released footage of what it said were strikes on Jabalia. In a statement, it said they killed dozens of Hamas combatants in an underground tunnel complex, as well as a commander, Ibrahim Biari. IDF spokesperson Jonathan Conricus said of Biari, quote, he was very important, I would say even pivotal in the planning and the execution of the October 7th attack against Israel. A Hamas spokesperson denied any senior commander was at Jabalia and called Israel's claim a pretext for killing civilians. Reuters could not independently verify the number of casualties, but the many videos of dead and wounded children, such as this one from a hospital just north of Jabalia, are prompting protests around the globe and urgent calls for a ceasefire. That includes some within Israel, as families of hostages taken by Hamas worry for the safety of their loved ones believed to be in Gaza. United Nations spokesman Stefan Dujeric pointed to international humanitarian law. Protection of civilians on both sides is paramount and must be respected at all times. The international humanitarian law establishes clear rules that cannot be ignored. It is not an a la carte menu and cannot be applied selectively. Bolivia on Tuesday cut diplomatic ties with Israel, accusing it of committing crimes against humanity in Gaza. Others, such as Chile and Colombia, recalled their ambassadors to Israel. On Wednesday, Israel accused Bolivia of capitulation to terrorism. The U.S. is arguing that JetBlue Airways' planned $3.8 billion acquisition of ultra-low-cost carrier Spirit Airlines will lead to higher fares and fewer flights. This comes as the Justice Department urged a federal judge to block the deal at the closely watched antitrust trial. The U.S. government kicked off its antitrust case against JetBlue in federal court on Tuesday. The Department of Justice urged a judge in Boston to block the airline's planned acquisition of low-cost carrier Spirit Airlines for nearly $4 billion. 
The trial is part of a broad effort by President Joe Biden's administration to preserve competition and ensure air travel remains affordable for U.S. consumers. A Justice Department attorney argued the airline merger would lead to fewer seats and higher prices, citing an internal JetBlue analysis which projected its fares would increase 30 percent once the deal was finalized. She said that would cost passengers roughly $1 billion annually. An attorney for JetBlue countered that the case was a misguided challenge to a merger between the country's sixth and seventh largest airlines, which together control less than 8% of the domestic market dominated by four larger carriers. United, American, Delta, and Southwest Airlines control 80% of the domestic market. The attorney for JetBlue said the government had wrongly tried to bar it from growing into a larger challenger to those four rivals and disrupt a market that has become bad for competition and bad for consumers. The trial. More ticker coming up.